And just seeing how solar was taking off, we got into doing solar development ourselves. Initially, things started off slowly, right? So like, once you say, hey, I'm going to do solar development, you realize how challenging it is. We focused on a few different sites, a couple of different states, and we were getting projects to 20p basically until they were ready to start construction. And then we were looking to sell them off. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview Matteo Chaskel. He's the Managing Director, USA at UGE. UGE develops, owns, and operates community and commercial solar generation storage projects. They have approximately 100 megawatts in their backlog and 800 megawatts in their pipeline. Matteo is responsible for leading and managing all development-related concerns for UGE projects, working closely with the business development team to develop successful projects, markets, and portfolios, coordinating UGE's project development activities, project finance efforts, regulatory and permitting knowledge, and ensuring a smooth transition to the construction team for build-out. There are a lot of interesting things that Matteo talks about in this podcast interview. He talks about the prime community solar markets in the U.S., how UGE makes educated bets on different state markets in the U.S. as well before they become saturated. Also, the competitive advantage of developing and owning solar projects and being through the whole product lifecycle. The company has been around since 2008, and he talks about the many pivots that they've made to be successful, you know, going through the nimbleness of their company and going through the solar roller coaster that we all experienced. He also talks about the advantages of being a publicly traded developer and owner of solar projects. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening, and let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited to have Matteo Chasco. He's the Managing Director of UGE in the U.S. Matteo, welcome to the podcast. Very good to be here, Benoit. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you listening to the podcast. And I'm excited because UGE has a unique slant on developing and owning projects. And I think our listeners will learn a lot from having you on the podcast. In the beginning of the introduction, we did talk a little bit about UG, but it would be great to learn more about the company. Sure, sure. So, so UG is a company we were founded in, in 2008, and I've been with, with UG since 2009. Uh, so, so I've been here through well, different uh, rides and turns and twists of the solar coaster, as it's called. Um, during that time, renewable energy has meant different things to different people with different administrations and different priorities in different states and whatever the case is. And one of the things UGE has been able to do is to adapt well to those changing regulations and changing realities of what are the solar panel costs and what incentives are available in different places and what legislation and what different structures for offtake are available and find the areas where we can succeed. Over the years, we've been able to adapt quite well. And nowadays, we're you know, focused on commercial solar development, primarily in and around the Northeast region. We found these markets to be very, very strong. And as a company, we, we are fairly vertically integrated. So we have origination on staff. We do all the development of the projects. We oversee all the construction. And we stay on as owners as well. So we really get to see the projects through from the beginning all the way through 25 years from now. Definitely. That's great. And there are very few companies that do that. Can you talk about like more of the unique insights or how maybe you might look at a project differently because you're going to end up owning the projects? 
It definitely is. And I can talk about that, I think, with a good amount of understanding because it's not what we've always done. We used to be in the role where we were developing projects and seeking to sell them off to others. And we found in doing so that it became challenging not only to complete the transactions because there was always friction involved when you have different parties with two different incentives trying to negotiate a deal, but also you know, six months or a year before you're talking to the people who you're selling the product to, you're already trying to accommodate them and understand what risks they're comfortable with, what type of projects they want to do, what situation with the offtake or with the ground or with the roof, whatever the case is. If you're the owner and you're the one that's seeing the project through from beginning to end, you can make those decisions with full confidence on day one and know that in 25, they're still going to be you know, under the same company with the same decision-making priorities. So it's just allowed us to become immensely much more flexible with the way we deal with these projects and approach them differently than we used to, where we just have more, more confidence, can move forward quicker, can make faster decisions and, and get more confidence that we're developing a good project from the start. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's a great perspective. And I know we talked about this in the pre-interview, like, for example, you know, maybe the lease agreement that you're using or the power purchase agreement, if you technically are the developer and you're working with an investor, they might come back with changes that you then have to go back to the power user or landowner, which is sometimes creates, you know, more difficulty in closing the transaction, which I know you spoke about before, which is a great example. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just a few things more painful than negotiating a lease agreement for several months. And then a few months later, coming back with, hey, actually, I need some more edits here from this other party that's not involved. I think on the website as well, you know, we've gotten not only into developing projects for ourselves to own, but we started acquiring some projects as well from other developers. I think because as an underlining item, we try to remain flexible with these types of things, because we know that how much work has gone into getting these leases done in the first place and these agreements done in the first place. Because of the way we're structured as a company, we don't have a big corporate overlord that is dictating how to do things. We have the power to say like, okay, this is something we're comfortable with, this is something we're not comfortable with, and making those decisions as management team moving on. So we have found that even when it comes to leases and to optic agreements and things like that, that we're acquiring, we can also have the luxury of being more flexible with the terms and understanding the deals not just as they're written down on paper, but more qualitatively too. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. And that's great insight. Can you talk about like the types of projects that you're developing compared to acquiring? Is it the same types of projects or is there something specific that you're looking at when you're acquiring a project? From a high level, they're probably very similar projects. The projects we are developing, you know, they're between up to five megawatts AC. And then on low side, we probably go as low as call it 300 kilowatts or so if it's just a strategic deal or if it's part of a portfolio. Um, the solar market is booming so much that I think there's an abundance of projects out there that are they're looking for owners and there's an abundance of owners out there that are looking for projects. So it's just a matter of like of marrying the two. And I think that the area where we find the most competitive in is, is markets that we're familiar with, namely these markets in the Northeast region that we have a presence in that we understand very well. And then maybe the projects have items that other investor owners out there have trouble getting comfortable with. But because we've been dealing in the New York market and the main market and then Maryland and you know the, some of these more upcoming markets like Pennsylvania, we can take a look at this project and say like, yes, this lines up with our development philosophy and the way that we look at projects, whereas other investors, investor owners out there that are trying to do things across 50 states and projects have to fit very nicely into a box that they have um, might have more trouble getting comfortable with some of the peculiarities of some of these markets. Yeah, that's so true. Each market is so unique and having an understanding and having experience in developing, you know, gives you an advantage with potentially owning the projects. 
Is there any other ways? Obviously, that's a big reason, a big differentiator from other investors. But how else do you differentiate it? Obviously, there are a lot of projects out there, but there's also a lot of you know capital and there's a lot of competition, I feel like, especially now, you know, that solar has become an asset that people have become comfortable with and mainstream and institutional investors. There's many investors out there, though, that are looking for very specific types of or have very specific types of capital to invest. There's investors out there who are looking for those products that have a 5%, 6% return and are very much the risk. And there's not too many open items out there. But we're very comfortable jumping into a co-development role, let's say. Yeah, there's higher returns to that, but we're comfortable with those risks because we are a developer first, right? Because we have that familiarity with, hey, you know, how much of a risk is this really? And this is something that's a deal breaker for us. Uh, we can analyze that properly compared with one of the you know more let's call it vanilla investors out there. We're looking for a product that is completely the risk and has no open items remaining. Every single product has wrinkles. And I think it's important to be comfortable with those wrinkles and really understand them. It's hard to find, obviously, investors who have development experience through the whole product lifecycle. I should have asked you this earlier, but can you talk about specifically your role at UG as you know managing director USA? I oversee everything we're working on within the within the US. So a lot of my time right now is spent on the development and construction and ownership of the projects, but also working very closely with the team out there that is originating these opportunities. So, you know, from the strategy of, hey, where are we looking for deals and how are we finding them? All the way through saying, hey, these are the deals we're developing, here are the timelines we're working on. And then finally, what was in construction? What are we building? How are we doing on those? And then how to finance them and transfer them over to the ownership side of the business. We're mentioning that we recently released our Q3 results and then our Q3 updates for, for investors and things like that. We have about 100 megawatts right now in our backlog and about 800 megawatts in the pipeline. So it's a wide slew of projects that the team is working on to move through that development cycle into construction and ownership. You know, if everyone doesn't know, can you talk about like how UG is like a publicly traded entity on the Toronto Stock Exchange? Let's say publicly, we've been there for several years on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We're in Toronto partially because we are an international company. So we have an office in Toronto and we have an office in the Philippines as well. And the office in the US, which is the portion of the business that I have a more closest in. As a public company, I think we found that it's a good thing sometimes and a bad thing sometimes. I think you're always have an audience, right? You're always releasing your financials telling the market how you're doing and the market reacts accordingly to that. Right? So I think the highs are higher and the lows feel lower. But at the end of the day, it provides us with an alternative mechanism to finance the company and to write updates that are consistent and transparent to investors that is fairly unique in the, in the industry, especially for this you know, vertically integrated developer type of role. There, there aren't too many others out there that are publicly listed. This is an avenue to further raise development capital, share information about the ownership of projects for investors on that front as well. Yeah, definitely. That's really helpful to understand. And, you know, I think it's pretty impressive, like the backlog that you're talking about. And I learned a lot from like reading what you're referring to the investor presentation that just came out for the third quarter of this year. And we'll have that as well in the link of podcast as well, just because it's really helpful information to understand like UG and also like the way you look at the solar market. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because as a public company, we want to share as much as you can with the investors to make everybody comfortable with like, hey, here's how we're going about things and here's why it's uh, successful in a winning strategy. At the same time, like I think it's people at the company that make you succeed because you're kind of telling the world what your secret sauce is, but then you, you know, you're counting on the people that are at the company to actually be the ones that are working hard to make that a reality. Being public has been a very interesting side of the business for sure. You know, one thing that I thought was really unique that I haven't seen before 
is that basically you created like a community solar grade based on state. And then there's like an A, B and C rating. Can you talk about that? That's pretty interesting to see that just because I haven't seen it in that way. And from an investor developer's perspective. It's interesting, especially being a public company and a company that has had an international presence. We've been in, in a number of countries over the years and working in the U.S. And it's just like you're working in 50 different countries. Each country has its very own, very specific regulations and incentives and economics. So you really need to analyze, okay, which are the best states for us to be in? Not just given what solar looks like there, uh, but also given where our own skills are and where we can be most competitive advantage. We've analyzed very closely the different states and, you know, kind of like given each one a rating and a priority for where we want to be and at what time. And yeah, based on that, you know, we've made right hires in the right places with the right goals to keep the company growing where we think solar is hottest. And it goes back to, you know, to think the couple of points I was making earlier that, you know, solar market is booming everywhere and there's not a shortage of opportunities. Then again, you know, any company in the space needs to remain flexible to adjust to the realities of solar and the realities of renewable energy and be very quick to make calls about like, hey, this is working here and this is not working here and we need to shift and accommodate that. Yeah, definitely. It's all about adjustments. You mentioned about the you know, solar coaster, which we're all very familiar and to be in the industry for 12 years since the start of the company. You know, it's amazing, which we'll talk about later about how many pivots you had. It's interesting because like for the A-rated shared solar guide, it's like New York, Massachusetts, Minnesota. Can you talk about like why these are potentially like better states than some of the other states right now? Obviously, you know, things are changing continuously with, you know, incentives, interconnection, availability at the substation. Would it be great for You know, we've been focused quite a bit on the community solar side of the market and not exclusively. We have our purchase agreements and also sort of different arrangements as well. But within the community solar market is where we've seen the best economics. I'll call them the easiest transactions, but I mean that in the sense that the transactions that have the least friction and move along most smoothly for everybody. So that includes us, it includes the lenders, it includes the property owners. Community solar has really been working out as a model. So we don't chase it exclusively, but that is highly determining like which markets we feel have the best chance of being you know, good for these five megawatt type of ground opportunities in the next two to five years, let's say. So we look at the markets that are best positioned from our legislative side and the markets where there's already legislation in progress. We work closely at the community to understand those markets and figure out where it is that we want to be. Solar can be very gold rushy at times, where a state passes very good legislation and also developers kind of run in there. So it's important to stay to stay a step ahead of things and not just go with the flow, but think a little more innovatively about these things. When we talked about that in the pre-interview, can you talk about how your development strategy might be unique compared to other developers in the market? Where I know you talked about getting into states earlier because you understand like the incentives and it's obviously things change, but you're able to dive deep, I guess, into the state level incentives to be able to move quickly once they kind of go, you know, positively for solar or community solar? You know, the state of Maine is probably a good example of that, where Maine was working towards legislation and they started being some interest from solar community. Then the legislation started moving forward faster, eventually got passed and signed. And it was just like flooded by solar companies and their interconnection queue blew up and products are now estimates of a decade in the interconnection queue. And there's all these issues with like different aspects of the utility and the substations and similar to what we've seen in other markets. Yeah. Once it gets saturated, it gets very complicated very quickly. But maybe a good example where we identified that these things were happening 
And you know, you're ultimately speculating a little bit, you're taking risks, you need to have the capital and the resources to do that successfully. We were able to get in and get some good interconnection positions on a number of different deals that we got in basically ahead of that rush. So now looking to do the same thing in the newer, newer community solar markets, some of which are starting to turn on now, some of which might still be a few months or a few years down the road. We're starting to plant those seeds for these projects that could be very valuable to us, but very valuable just to the community as well. And can you talk about the newer markets and community solar? I think there's, I'll say broadly, the usual suspects that a lot of the solar community has has become interested in. So markets like Pennsylvania and Virginia, New Mexico as well, have a number of things that are changing, Delaware. As a company, we've been in and around the Northeast, mostly recently, I would say not by design, but because that's where we've seen have been the markets that are most interesting to us lately. But that could change. And we're keeping a close eye also like the Midwest states and some of the other states as we pass different programs where it is that we want to focus on next. Definitely. That is helpful to understand. And it was interesting, like earlier you talked about community solar, how you do all types of solar, but community solar has been more attractive. Can you talk about why it's more attractive than maybe other types of solar? Having been in the industry for so long, we've done a number of different types of solar transactions. We have plenty of PPAs we've done, plenty of just like you know cash or debt transactions we've completed. But community solar is helpful in that it's separated, I think about it from a high level, but that it separates the land acquisition and the development from, from the offtake. So on the one hand, like you find a good property, you know, which kind of checks off all the boxes you're looking for, good interconnection, good land to build on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the flip side, you know, finding the off-takers a different challenge, but one that you can identify early on and work towards checking off the boxes on. So you can build large projects, making sure that the off-take is going to be there at the right time when you need it. In some markets, that's worked out better than in others. I think it depends a lot on the legislation and what the credit rate is and how how many discounts you can offer. It's definitely a model that has worked best for us. I know there's companies out there who aren't comfortable with community solar, put a lot of risk on off-takers and what's going to happen with them. Only look for, you know, AAA credit rated off-takers. That's not what you find in community solar. The community solar requires you to have an understanding of who your off-takers are and how comfortable you are with that off-take and the returns you're getting on it. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. It's separate to both the development and then the customer acquisition for the offtake because on a like a behind the meter project, normally it's just one offtaker. But it could be a great site or a great rooftop for solar, but you can't move forward if they're not interested. And obviously, you could do a lot bigger size, like 5 megawatts AC versus to get a 5 megawatt rooftop. That's like... Yeah, exactly. And solar is like 4% of the grid power right now. And the latest plan we saw was to bump it up to 30% by 2035 or something, 40% by 2035. So big increases that are coming here where solar is going to be, you know, deployments will be doubling year on year very soon here. You know, I think it's all about positioning yourself to be successful in that. So for us, we've really found a good niche in community solar and we love it and we're good at it and we're comfortable with it. But yeah, there might be other companies out there who are like comfortable working, doing power purchase agreements for large companies and that's totally fine. I think it's just about finding the space where you can most succeed. 
Can you talk about like other trends that you're seeing? Obviously, you mentioned a great point about the goals for solar, 40% by 2035. What are some trends that you're seeing in the industry? I see a trend towards more community solar is probably fair to say. It was a very, very new model when it was starting in some states probably three or four years ago now. And now it's become kind of like the standard in many states and it's only been growing. I think also the technology keeps coming down in cost and, you know, there's tariffs and there's always some uncertainty going down, but like it's clear that the cost curve is going down. So I think when we started to where we are now, solar panels must have dropped 80, 90% in price, right? So it's, it's, it's numbers that are crazy to think about that I don't think have a clear comparison in any other industry. So what it's allowed, basically, it's allowed projects to become, I don't know if faster is the right term. All of a sudden you can like afford it make sense to do trackers. I mean, like for grandmas to track the sun, whereas beforehand, that was just unthinkable. Right? Solar panels were too expensive. Trackers were even more expensive. Yeah, we can't afford it. Whereas now everything comes down in price. Like, hey, now, now I can make that cost back because it's slower. I can actually make it back through the energy I'm generating. So it makes sense. And same thing goes for bifacial modules. It used to be a premium and the tariffs kind of pushed it towards being more commonplace. But now it makes a lot of economic sense to go with bifacial modules for the same reason, right? As long as you have like enough space to get power on both sides, you can make that money back pretty quickly. So I think we'll continue to see solar becoming more and more accessible in more and more locations just because the cost keeps going down and the federal government is stepping in to support it more. And where the federal government hasn't stepped in, we've seen some state governments step in. So altogether, it just becomes a much more accessible technology and that becomes much more feasible in many more places. You were asking me about the trend. I think that you know the overall underarching trend is like solar is becoming much more economical, which opens up much more spaces where it can be installed. Yeah, those are great trends. And you know, hopefully we're not that far from grid parity where we're not dependent on incentives because then I feel like the growth's more exponential at that point. You need to consider what grid parity means as means as well, right? Because whatever whichever source of energy is out there, it has some sort of incentives attached to it. I think on a level playing field, solar can compete with any other technology out there. Um, just a matter of finding out the best way to level that playing field right now. It's not like technology, like also on the optic side, you know, community solar is a new structure on the optic side. But we're seeing more and more innovation as far as like how to subscribe to that optic. And so you don't have to go out there and find 5,000 subscribers for your community solar system. You can get, and we've done this on a couple of locations. We have a partnership with a telecoms company. So like the products we're building in and around New York City, they have small meters, they have any small commercial optic. They can go in there and, and anchor or underline some of the residential optics that we have as well. Giving you and investors more confidence about the returns on the project and minimizing how much uncertainty there is with the optic. Likewise, on another project through a partnership that the aggregator had with a firm where all their employees could sign up to one of these arrays, for example. So we have some of our solar products that are signed up almost exclusively to employees of a single Fortune 500 company. And again, like it just it works very, very smoothly when you don't have to go out there and find people by door knocking or, or online mechanisms, but there's other ways to, to get to them. That's interesting because like you're really talking about going after like certain organizations or communities or as you said, a corporate or a telecom where they have like customers who would be interested and instead of door knocking, which could be so expensive, that's a lot more economical. Does UG do customer acquisition or management, or do you have a separate company that you partner with? So for, for the most part, we're, we're partnering with other companies. Because of the sheer numbers, you end up getting a lot of subscribers and, and you need to structure it the right way to go out there and find all these subscribers. But to a certain degree, we're starting to get some of the optic ourselves, both residential and commercial. I expect we'll continue to do both because it is, it is helpful to find the most strategic aspects of aggregation ourselves. But it's also helpful to have someone out there who can like get you a couple hundred subscribers when you need them to. Definitely. That is so true. 
The other thing that I was going to talk about, you've been in UGA for about, what, 12 years or 11 years? The company started 12 years ago, and then you started 11 years ago or 12 years? I recently had my 12th year anniversary on LinkedIn popped up. Oh, congratulations. And you were employee number two or three? Yeah, roughly. Depends how you count it a little bit. I started in 2009 as an intern while I was finishing my master's. But at that point, it was pre-office and yeah, just a couple of us in the city, mostly interns or consultants. For sure. And our podcast is about entrepreneurship, solar and entrepreneurship. It would be interesting if you could talk about like all the pivots that UG has had. And it's just amazing for me, you know, to know obviously UG and the team for a long time to see how you're able to adapt. And, you know, within the solar industry or the solar coaster, so many businesses have failed because you have to constantly be adapting because the industry is changing. It would be interesting just to get your perspective of some of like the major pivots and I'll focus on the major ones. If we did all of them, I think we'd have to go on much longer than my allocated time. Um, to start from a high level, I think, you know, what I mentioned before, what you just mentioned there, right? I think renewable energy 12 years ago was a very, very different animal than it is today. And any company that was around 12 years ago has had to go through a lot of changes to get to where it is today. And some haven't made it just because, you know, either they weren't the right fit for the market at that time, or they just they weren't able to adapt or, or weren't willing to adapt as well to some of those changes. Or on the product side initially, where we were doing a lot of selling of products and packaged systems. And we have an engineering team still that you know, has kind of like grown into its own entity. But like we were doing a lot of engineering for companies really around the world and selling products, helping distribute products, design systems, things like that, both in small wind and solar. The solar cost curve came down as quickly as it did. Like solar became a bigger and bigger side of our business. So back in, must have been like 2016 or so, was when we sold off the small wind side of the company really doubled down on solar. And just seeing how solar was taking off, we got into doing solar development ourselves. Initially, things started off slowly, right? So like, once you say, hey, I'm going to do solar development, you realize how challenging it is. We focused on a few different sites, a couple of different states, and we were getting projects to 20p basically until they were ready to start construction. And then we were looking to sell them off. I think as we matured as a company, we figured out how to do this right. We started getting into some of the construction, which further de-risks the project and signed the projects off as they got to completion. In 2019, that we got into the ownership side of things, where we said, like, okay, we understand the development well enough, we understand construction well enough. Now let's figure out the ownership side, right? Which you know anyone will tell you is a whole Pandora's box as well of complexities. Once you start looking at that and tax equity investors and you know all the details that go along with it, the asset management side of the business is not simple. The regulatory things, so like it's a whole different business for a company to learn. But again, we were able to do it successfully and do it, you know, the right ramp up where when we started owning a couple of projects here and there, still selling most of them. Then we got more and more into ownership, still sell a couple. But at this point, basically everything in our pipeline, you know, the 100 plus megawatts in our backlog and the 800 plus megawatts in our pipeline, we're looking to own ourselves. There might be a few in there that aren't a fit due to timing or location or size or whatever reason. And I think at that point, we can look at selling them. But for the most part, looking to stay on as the owners. You know, to your question on pivots, right? That's a very big pivot from selling products at the beginning of the decade. We've been adapting to where solar makes the most sense, right? So like, We've done some work in Long Island, for example. Long Island isn't that attractive anymore, so we've moved around to the areas where it does make sense. New Jersey was very hot, turned off, it's hot again. So we've been trying to keep our presence there as best as we can. A lot of work in New York City. It's all about pivoting and remaining flexible and quick and adaptable to whatever solar demands at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to understand. I mean, how many pivots... It's a totally different business than what you first started in the beginning of this decade. So that's pretty impressive. And I appreciate you sharing that. 
when friends ask me how I worked at the same company for 12 years, which is very unique, I'd say not only in solar, but in this, you know, the world's current economy works. Like the truth is like the company has changed significantly 12 years I've been here. And I started as an engineer. That's my background, mechanical engineering. So my role has also, you know, just changed entirely over the years. So yeah, it's, it's remained very exciting for sure. Yeah. And it sounds like you've had a pivot as well. Like what you came in with your background in mechanical engineering is very different to what you're doing now as you know, your knowledge base, especially too, like starting as a developer, I'm sure there was a huge learning curve. And I think only once you start to trying to develop projects on your own, you realize how difficult it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there came a point where it was like, all right, do you want to get more into the business side or more into the engineering side? And I think it's almost a question that all engineers face at some point in their careers. Engineering provides you with a very solid base to understand like the numbers and understand some of the decisions that the engineering team is making about what it is in a certain way. And you never lose that knack of like, hey, I want to review these drawings, make sure they were done right. <laughs> even, though, even though I'm so, so far removed from them, I still, I still attempt to do that. For myself, it's been an interesting pivot. I think it's certainly one that I've enjoyed quite a bit. I think it goes back to the point of just like, you know, how much solar is growing, how much work there is to do across all sides of it. You know, the fact that there's like room for so much innovation with technology, with financial models, with financing itself, right, with offtake and how that's structured and just positioning ourselves to be in a good place to do this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for working at a company that's very nimble and entrepreneurial and then obviously wearing many hats and like the knowledge that you've acquired over the 12 years is like substantial and will probably be even exponential as, you know, solar continues to grow exponentially as an industry. We're a very entrepreneurial company. I think in our heart of hearts, that's that's what underlines, you know, the methodology of things. We're not afraid of a challenge and rather I think we're, we're eager for challenges. And I think that allows us to stand out versus some of the other companies out there. But yeah, our team, you know, everybody who works here is very much entrepreneurial mentality, looking to grow themselves well personally and just put ourselves into uncomfortable positions that we can learn and grow from. Obviously, to be successful, especially in solar, you have to be entrepreneurial and think outside the box. And yeah, yeah. Have you looked at any sort of standalone storage or solar plus storage at this time? Or what are your thoughts on the storage market going forward? So we've done a little bit of solar plus storage, mostly on the resiliency side. So there was a grant for Hurricane Sandy, which was a few years ago, but it was a federal grant and it found some time to work its way through to actual deployments. But but there's a project we're building right now that are solar plus batteries for, for small businesses that were affected by Sandy and several cases also by some of the most recent hurricanes, Henry and Ida. We have some familiarity with like the integration of solar and batteries and how that makes sense. We have a few projects on the larger side, some of these community solar projects. Primarily in York and some of the ones we're looking at in Massachusetts, as well as a couple in Maine, we have the optionality to do storage and we're analyzing very, very closely how to best go about it. We haven't built a site yet that incorporates storage fully, but with the way that storage costs are looking, and by that I mean the way that they're coming down as quickly as they are, possibilities for storage to be included more holistically and on a standalone basis in the ITC. I think it's all things that get us very excited about the future for storage. So I expect, you know, if we were talking a year from now, I think my answer would be very, very different. I think we'd have a lot of storage being done in the next year plus. You know, not many people have been doing solar plus storage or standalone storage, but you're getting that experience now. And I think getting early into it and obviously these New York community solar projects combined with storage, that's great, like Intel. We will see more storage coming into play for sure, especially as that technology becomes much more feasible to include in projects. Are you seeing the most prevalent technology, obviously, lithium-ion being the most like financeable and people the most comfortable with? Are you seeing anything outside of lithium-ion? 
We're seeing lithium-ion as the likeliest candidate, I'd say, for these larger solar systems in particular, right? for the ones where you're doing daily usage of the battery. Um, lithium-ion seems to be the winner. But there's plenty of companies out there that we're talking to regularly to really get our hands around what the best options are. And there's different projects, right? Where like with different temperatures, if you're developing something in New Mexico than if you're developing it in New York, right? That changes some of the numbers on the batteries and some of the thoughts on which battery makes the most sense. And also it's different if you're in states where you have to cycle your battery 10 times in a year or 50 times in a year or 365 times in a year to make the most of it. Closely, but yeah, the lithium-ion you know, has become our default choice, but I think that the answer will become much more mature over time. Obviously, UG is growing. You're hiring more people. What is the hardest position to find quality talent? That's an interesting question because I think every manager will say it's the one that they're hiring for right now. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the growth that that you're mentioning in solar and that UG, there's a lot of people going into solar. That's entirely fine. You just need to structure a team. You can go into it with a mentality of like, hey, I'm going to be hiring people who are new to solar or who are potentially exposed to it, but that are going to need training. It's become very challenging to hire people with a lot of experience. There's only so many people who have experience and there's a lot of people who are, like, who are looking for them. We have a few roles that we're hiring for at the management level. We need people to come in with knowledge and you know, we'd be very excited to get the right people in the right positions. But the broad base of the team that we're hiring, and our team has grown a ton in the past year, the team we're hiring, especially on development and deployment, are people who have been you know, exposed to solar, let's say, because they're working in things that are environmental and they seem some solar, they're working on things that or maybe with electrical contractors, you know, construction for solar, even though they haven't been working for a company directly. Not any specific role, just across your organization. I think the senior roles are more challenging to hire for right now. And for us, trying to grow that baseline of people who will become senior in time, right? Who will gain that knowledge and can grow with the company, which is what our strategy has become. One of the things that you mentioned is how training is going to be important because there are a lot of people who are interested in solar but might not have the necessary background, which is interesting because like as an entrepreneurial company, you might not have the resources or the time to really train people you know, formally. I know I mentioned this to you, like listen to an interview that Nick did, who's the CEO of UG. And he said that the hardest part to find is like project developers in the market right now. Like they're so in demand and the prices that an experienced and accomplished project developer would be compensated is extremely high. So it's interesting because it sounds like you have to find people who have some of the skills and maybe not have the perfect background and, you know, then develop into that role. Yeah, exactly. And you know, to your point there, like the training aspect becomes key, right? Because you know you're going to hire people who will need to be trained in the right way to succeed at UG. And you want them to succeed, you want them to grow with the company. Sometimes on the line, they should be managers themselves. The whole training aspect, and you're right, it takes time, it takes resources, but it's probably one of the best time investments you can make. Just making sure that the people who are coming in ramp up very quickly and get, get familiar and comfortable with the way things are done at your company very quickly. This has been an amazing interview, Mateo. I really appreciate your time. You provide a lot of great perspective on UG, the market in general, and your story too, and the many pivots that you've had to make within your career in a very entrepreneurial and growing company at UG. What's the best way for our audience who we call Mavericks to learn more about UG or yourself? Always check out our website, ugei.com. I try to be very accessible by email or on LinkedIn. But yeah, I think whether the listeners here are 
a company that is looking for investment and co-development of an opportunity. If it's somebody who maybe has has property or has a rooftop or wants to be a subscriber to solar array, it's all different things. We'd be happy to direct them to the right person internally. Definitely. That's helpful to know for our listeners who are listening. And we'll have your contact information and the link to UG on our notes of the podcast. And this has been a great interview. I really appreciate it. Again, your time. And thank you. I found it really helpful. And I think our audience will find it really helpful as well. So thank you again. We've known each other for several years now. So you've had the first-hand experience of all the changes and how UG has been able to make it through and succeed in that. So yeah, I appreciate your time as well and hope it's an educational podcast for listeners. It's just amazing for me to hear your success and the company's success. To obviously know the company for a very long time and see it. So thank you again. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.